Let us read. Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness in front of men, to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honored by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. When you fast, in verse 16, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face, so that it will, be, it will not be obvious to men that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Let us pray. Lord, I thank you for these words from the bottom of my heart. I thank you that you have chosen to reveal yourself through your holy word. And I, I, I thank you, Lord, that your holy word reveals your only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, now I pray that you would move me from what you planned to do this morning, that you would make me disappear, Lord. I pray and I confess anything in my heart that would block your spirit from doing its work. And Lord, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I love secrets, don't you? I was, I, was, I was sitting here racking my brain saying, what are some of the best secrets I've had? And then I thought, well, maybe that's not a good way to start a sermon, right? Some of these secrets are actually gossip, aren't they? But I did come up with one fantastic time in my life when I had a secret that was burning inside of me to tell somebody. And that was any time my wife and I were expecting. And, and, and those of you who have been through this, you know, we, we're, we're confirmed, we've prayed, and of course, I, I come home every day, and I, and I look to Diane, and she's sitting over here, so I'm going to look over here at her. And I say, can I, can I, can I, can I? She says, no, not yet, no, not yet. She's the keeper of all secrets. And then when she does give me the green light, I get on the phone, or I get in the car, or every person I see, I say, guess what? And as time as goes on, this has not worked as well, because like, you're pregnant. I'm like, yeah, okay, fine. But the first time, guess what, what? We're expecting and that burst of joy and that burst of love that comes from whomever I've shared this news with is fantastic and amazing. And I get to share that so often with so many people. Those are wonderful secrets to share. But there are also those times, and this has happened, where I share that same secret with somebody and they already know. You ever had that feeling? You ever had that experience? And you say it and they're like, they try to pretend to be surprised. They try to pretend to be engaged. With, well, actually, I already know. And you're a little down. You're a little disappointed. Somebody else 
had that wonderful experience before you did. And that's okay. And today I hope to really talk about and experience those two kinds of experiences. Secrets that you may not know and are going to share a wonderful joy with me. And secrets that you already know and I'm going to be disappointed, but at the same time I'm not because the experience itself is far more important than the secret. Okay? So I've got six points today. So if you're taking notes at home, be prepared. Stretch out your hands. I'm going to make you feel welcome for when Pastor Samuel comes back with his three-point sermon. Uh, I want to hopefully bring some theological truths that spring from this text and really get to the heart of the matter. Pun intended. So I'm going to have three truths. And I, what I'll say is these are three truths that I think we all have heard, we all have heard preached to us, we've, we've discussed these, the church for 2,000 years has grabbed onto these truths. And they are spoken of by Jesus here in the text. And as a reminder, where is Jesus? He is on the mountain. He is preaching the Sermon on the Mount. And I implore you, if you have not heard Pastor Samuel's sermon series on the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount, please do review them. They are fantastic. They are a blessing to our souls. But right now, in the middle of this time, Jesus comes with these three wonderful truths about giving, about praying, and about fasting. So I'm going to give you three truths. The first truth, number one, God wants us to give pray, and fast. You probably knew that already, right? You probably have experienced that. You've probably been taught that since you were young, if you've been in the church, that God wants us to give, pray, and fast. How do I know this? Because as Jesus says, verse 2, so when you give, verse 3, but when you give, verse 5, and when you pray, verse 6, but when you pray, verse 16, when you fast, verse 17, but when you fast. These are all conditional clauses, and they assume something. They assume this will happen. So as we think about this sermon text, I want that truth to be deeply implanted in us. The church has always been about giving and praying and fasting since day one. And we are also commanded to give and pray and fast. Jesus assumes it. We should do it. And churches that have fallen away from this truth and this command are in trouble of missing much of the Christian blessing. They are in trouble of disobeying the commands of Christ. The scriptures record numerous times where Jesus and his disciples give, pray, and fast. And in the book of Acts, we see the church continually in the process of giving to each other all that they had, praying fervently for each other, as well as fasting so that they might focus on the will of God. The kingdom of God is in full display when his subjects are characterized by the acts of giving, praying, and fasting. So, simple truth number one. I'm a simple man, so I like simple truths. Truth number two. God wants us to include public giving, praying, and fasting. God wants us to include public giving, brain, and fasting. 
Jesus is not saying here that we should not be public about that, and I hope you know that full well, because did we not pray in public this morning? Did we not pray corporately? Did we not give corporately? There are times where the public nature of such acts are important reminders to the church of our worship of God. We may pray in public, we may give corporately, and we may discuss fasting with other believers in order to learn more and understand the important role of this spiritual discipline. And when you think about it, you can't always give in secret, can you? Of course, today you can give anonymously, and that, and that is an important part of the giving process. But oftentimes our giving is between at least one other person, and they know we're giving to them. And there is a blessing there, and there is an interaction, and there is a known quantity. It's a known experience. One of my favorite biblical passages and stories is in Mark 12, verses 41 through 44. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins. Were they only a few cents? Worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. There was a public giving going on in the temple there was a line, much like our line on Sundays when we have our, 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 our fellowship of food. There's that line. Well, there was this line in the temple, and Jesus and disciples were sitting there, standing there watching. And Jesus was, in his wonderful power, looking at the entire person and what they were doing. And in that story, I'm reminded that we need to have times where we are giving publicly so the world can see what it is to give as Christians. We're often called to pray right then and there with someone who is in need of prayer to lift up our praise to the Lord. I've been convicted of this lately, and some of you have, you know, have, have maybe experienced this, but, but I implore you. I often have said, I will pray for you, and I go later on and pray for you. Why don't we just pray now? Why don't we just stop what we're doing? If it's so important that I'm going to pray for you later, why don't we do it right here and now? Wherever we are, on the bus, at school, at work, it doesn't matter. Let us lock hands in prayer publicly. Let the world see that this something is so important among the faithful in the family that we must stop what we are doing, put everything aside, and pray now. I've been convicted of that. I've too much put prayer for something in the future. And there's power in praying with someone else. Yes, we must pray alone. We must go to our closet. But yet we are called over and over to pray together. Lock hands together. Listen to the connection between prayer and fasting and the work of the Lord in Acts 13. Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. The Scriptures is replete with examples of us 
gathering ourselves to pray and fast. We recently, in the life of our body, found the Spirit prompting us to fast for our family in the midst of trouble and sin. And that was the right thing to do. And we need to do more of that, where we separate ourselves from the world to fast and pray for someone in trouble, for someone who is hurting, for the suffering that comes in this life. Truth number three. God has designed a reward for giving, praying, and fasting. God has designed a reward for giving, praying, and fasting. We read Jesus saying, I tell you the truth. In verse 2, they have received their reward in full. Again, Jesus repeats, I tell you the truth. In verse 5, they have received their reward in full. And again, in verse 16, Jesus repeats, I tell you the truth. They have received their reward in full. There is a natural connection between these activities. There is a natural cause and effect between giving, praying, and fasting. And Jesus takes great pains to point out that there is a reward, but not all rewards are rewards we should seek. Not all rewards are rewards that we should desire. Not all rewards are rewards that God would call us to to search for and yearn for. In the secular world, if you listen to social scientists, they often talk about why did man develop the need to give? Why did man develop the need to give when for so much of man's history, giving meant putting yourself at risk when you have so little? And they came up with this idea of reciprocity. And that is that anthropologists and sociologists have argued and, 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 and evolutionary biologists have argued man figured out that giving was better because giving always got. That reciprocity means that we give in order to get back. And that's how we survived all these years. Let me warn you. That is a type of reward. That is a type of outcome from giving. But in the final analysis, that reward may not be an eternal one. That reward may end much quicker than we need it to and want it to. It is only a temporary reward. And when Jesus cries out three times, I tell you the truth, they have received the reward in full, he says it in the past tense. And today I hope to point you to a much better reward, to a much better cause and effect action. So those are the three truths, three simple truths about giving, praying, and fasting. Now I want to open it up to secrets. And these secrets have quotation marks around them. They're not secrets because they are fully exposed to us in the Word of God. And yet, they deal with a topic that is the most easy to hide, that is the most easy to, to put away. Secret number one. God wants us to connect giving, praying, and fasting to something inside of us. God wants us to connect giving, praying, and fasting to something inside of us. How do I know this? 
Let us look again at the instructions Jesus gives in today's text. Verse 3. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Verse 6. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. And in verse 17, but when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. What connects these? Jesus is saying that in the process of giving, praying, and fasting, you need to close off sometimes, close off the outward expression of those things and connect them to something inside of us. You need to make them almost secret. You need to make them almost a secret that only you know. And that's the point. Jesus is saying you need to make them secret to the world to figure out what's going on inside of you. What is the connection? And in God's word, the correct place to describe where that connection has to end is your heart. The the word that God has used to describe the place of all your thoughts, all your motives, all your feelings, and your will to act is your heart. I think the, the Jews were much smarter than us in many ways. First, they were blessed by the revelation of God. And in one of those blessings, the Jews knew the correct words to use. They knew the power of words. Love emotion, I shouldn't say love, emotion, feelings, anger, those kinds of things, hot, cold. The word that the Jews tended to use to describe those kinds of feelings was the gut, right? The gut, the stomach. The Jews reserved the true place of all your will, motives, and actions. Everything flows from the heart. See, right today we get it mixed up, don't we? We say everything flows from the heart. All your emotions, are, no, 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 they're in the gut, right? Like I'm nervous right now, it's in the gut. The butterflies are right here, okay? No, the right word is the heart. Your heart is the place where all worship begins and ends. It is the core place where your identity resides, where your dreams and hopes and goals spring from. It's also where your deepest, darkest fears and secrets sit. Hmm. I wonder why Christ would have us once in a while shut off the public display of giving, praying, and fasting and bring it all inside. Bring it all within us. Something's going to happen, I pray. Something's going to happen. The heart much like the dark room where Christ has just instructed his people to pray, is where the truth of what we truly worship, the truth of what we truly admire, the truth of what we truly love, the truth of what we truly covet, the truth of what we truly desire exists. I like the KJV. Remember the KJV version of this? Go into your closet. I did a little research. That room, that, 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 that word for room or closet is a little ambiguous. But some commentators said, well, if it had a door, 
And most Jewish homes of the times probably wouldn't have had front doors. If it had a door, it was probably a storeroom. It was where people kept the most precious things. And it was dark. Secret number one, God wants us to connect giving, praying, and fasting to something inside of us. Secret number two, God is constantly scanning our hearts to see what we truly worship. God is constantly scanning our hearts to see what we truly worship. In the text, God, our Father, is unseen. But in this context, He is unseen in that He has chosen to be revealed through His one and only Son, Jesus Christ. He is revealed through the work of His Holy Spirit. And His Holy Spirit is revealed through the work of His people, the church. And in the ending of these three sections of text, we find your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Your Father who sees what is done in secret, your heart where your secrets lie. God is constantly scanning your heart and my heart to see what is going on. This is a father who constantly is searching and scanning the most secret places of, on this earth. Even the most sincerest and sacrificial of acts, giving to others of what you own, praying to another in a show of submission to authority, and fasting, which is sacrificing food, quite an important part of our life on this planet. Fasting to focus on a higher priority than this body. Even these acts must be scanned by God, for they can come from the hearts. They can come from hearts that do not worship. They can come from hearts that do not worship. The Pharisees thought they were worshiping. And Jesus is correcting the idea that the acts themselves prove worship. They do not. This is exactly why the psalmist cries out at the conclusion of Psalm 139. If you want a psalm of searching, read Psalm 139. But at the end, verses 23 and 24, we read, Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. See, the problem we have in this world is not a flesh problem. It's a heart problem. You see, before Adam and Eve reached out for the forbidden fruit in rebellion, they had already rebelled in their hearts. And we have all fallen prey to this fact. And Paul succinctly and powerfully states this fact in Romans 1, 21. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degradating of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator 
who is forever praised. Amen. You see, the exchange didn't happen in the flesh. The exchange, the lie sits where? The lie sits in our hearts. For it is the place where all worship begins and ends. It is the place where everything that you joy in and hope for sits. And the problem of man is that we have corrupted hearts. From the rebellion of Adam and Eve, we have all descended. We have all rebelled in our hearts. And that is why God has made a way to born us again in our hearts, to be reborn in our hearts. For we deserve the judgment and condemnation of having hearts that do not worship the Creator, but the created things. And God is just, and He must punish. For we have exchanged the truth for a lie. And yet in His mercy, God sent His one and only Son, Jesus Christ, to come and live a perfect life. Show us what true heart worship looks like. From within to without. And then the one and only Son gave himself up as a sacrifice for our hearts on the cross. And he died and he was buried. He was dead and yet he rose victorious three days later. And that is the gospel. That is what we need for our hearts if we're going to ever take that lie out, open up the secret lives of our hearts, we must implant it with the gospel. We must believe in the gospel. If you do not believe in the gospel today, please come and talk to me or Pastor Samuel or any one of the members here, and we will discuss the gospel. Test the youth with the gospel. This May was my 10-year anniversary of being a Christian. So I'm, I'm, a baby. I'm a baby in Christ. I'm a baby. I'm like a teenager in Christ. And I celebrated in my heart as I thought back to that past. And yet I also was a little saddened because in my 10 years, more often than not, I have been told or was not not told that the gospel was a past event that had very little bearing on my heart today. And praise be to God that in this church, that is not what we teach. And praise be to God this weekend the youth heard that to be a cross-centered Christian is to have the gospel right in the middle of your heart where all worship begins and ends. And I started thinking about how terrible a lie it is. How terrible it is when we do not teach the fact that the gospel is not a past event. Salvation is not a past event in the sense that it is over and done with and we can move forward. And that the gospel is only for those who do not believe. What a terrible lie. It is, it is reached to a lie in many churches that is harming the faithful. Because I started thinking about balance. Here's the cross. The cross of Christ 
the, the ultimate sacrifice. And, and ten years ago, I received the gospel. The Lord opened my eyes. And I think I left the gospel there. So here's the cross, and I'm walking away from the gospel. What is going to balance in my life the cross? What is God going to ask of me to say, how will you respond? How can you balance? Is the cross balanced by a, the sinner's prayer? Is the cross balanced by signing a card? Is the cross balanced by walking down the aisle? I argue that no. The only balance that makes sense for the cross when you come to the gospel is you. You. All of you. All the time until the day you die and go to glory with your Savior. That is the only balance that makes sense. We've got to get this right. If we do not teach our children that when they come to faith in Christ, and I pray they all do, when they come to faith in Christ, their life now becomes the balance for what God has done. And it is no balance, brothers and sisters, ladies and gentlemen. But in God's mercy, He has made it so. He has made it that if we give our lives to Him, Christ is glorified. The cross is proclaimed and people, more and more people come to know him with our lives. Not with a past event. Not even with external acts of giving, praying, and fasting. But with our hearts. All of us. It's the only way the great commandment makes sense. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. I think Jesus could have stopped there. Because by nature, we are heart creatures who have to worship something. We have a wonderful book in the bookstall called Gospel Treason, Betraying the Gospel with Hidden Idols. I encourage you to pick up that book. It has blessed me because it lays simply out how we start to fill in. We as Christians start to fill in our heart. We start to push the cross to the side and put other things in the center of our hearts. And wouldn't you know it, there are signs that we're doing this. There are signs that we're doing this. There are signs to you internally. There may be signs to the church visually. I ask you, please, consider these truths. And finally, secret number three. God calls us to constantly scan our hearts to see what we truly worship. God calls us to constantly scan our hearts to see what we truly worship. And in this, I'm going to read verse 6. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. And although Christ doesn't say it explicitly, I think the image that he lays out to me speaks of a very interesting reality. Jesus is saying he's calling us to turn our heart whenever we give, uh, us to turn to our heart whenever we give, pray, and fast. He's also saying, go into the dark room. Anybody been in a dark room lately? What happens as soon as those lights go out and you walk into a dark room? Something interesting happens. 
you start talking to yourself. Am I, am, I, am, I, am I the only one? You start having an internal conversation. Oh, this room is dark. I'm a little scared. I hope I don't bump in anything. Right? Where's the cat? That is a crucial part of how God has designed us. For when darkness comes, an internal dialogue begins. And when there's light and there's stuff going on, we can never talk to each other. Except those of us who are like only children. We do that all the time. But you notice how the world can crowd out your internal voice? And I think Jesus is saying, separate yourself just once and go into a dark room and start having a conversation with yourself and ask yourself, I'm going to pray. Why am I going to pray? What am I doing here? Am I worshiping? Is this what I'm supposed to do? Who is Jesus? What is the gospel? And the longer you stay in the dark room, the more questions you can ask. And I hope that in that dark room, something incredible happens. You start to see an idol in your heart. You start to see something that is taking you away from the worship of the living Savior. 2 Corinthians 13.5 we read, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. It's in a dark room, in a dark place. It's in suffering. It's in when nobody's around and you've been abandoned that you can ask yourself, Jesus, are you here? Do I truly trust you? Do I worship you? Am I in you? The youth this weekend focused on the cross-centered life. And when I said that I was blessed probably more than anybody, I, I really mean it. Because one of the studies we did was the symptoms of a cross-less life. The symptoms of a cross-less life. And based on the book, The Cross-Centered Life by C.J. Mahaney, the youth were given and the leaders were given these questions. Put a check mark next to the one that describes you. I often lack joy. If you are living a cross-less life, you may answer, that's me. I often lack joy. I'm not consistently growing in spiritual maturity. My love for God lacks passion. I'm always looking for some new technique, some new truth, or new experience that will put all the pieces of my faith together. My sin doesn't bother me. My sin bothers me so much that I'm constantly wondering if I'm a Christian. That is a form of idol worship. There are Christians enslaved to the idol of not letting the mercy of God wash over them and continually bringing back the sin of the past whom God himself has forgotten, whom God himself has cast as far as the east is from the west. I was one of them. There are sins I committed when I was 18 and 19 that I did not understand that when I came to Christ, they're gone. They're forgiven. I confess them sincerely, and yet why do I keep bringing them back up? 
I think I have to make up for my sin by doing something good. Symptoms of a crossless life. I always feel guilty and unclean and condemned. No. We are sinners saved by grace through faith. If you're walking around always feeling condemned, something is not right in your heart. The gospel is not sitting fat in your heart. I'm seeking comfort and ease in life. I remind you the words of Jesus. If anyone would follow me, pick up your cross and carry it. Once a month, once a year, daily. Pick up your instrument of torture, Jesus says to the Jews. They would not have responded well to that. Another symptom of a crossless life, I have a critical spirit towards other people. There is no way that the light of Christ can shine forth freely through you if you're constantly criticizing other people. I am overly concerned about being liked by others. How can we find satisfaction in anything else than Christ? How can we care about anybody's view of us when we are desiring to follow and obey the Lord. I constantly lack desire for spiritual disciplines, reading my Bible, praying, Christian fellowship, hearing the preaching of God's word. And yet these are things that God, Christ commands us to do in joy and in worship. And if those are things that have not been part of your life, go into your dark room and ask yourself why. Seek counsel. Seek accountability. Go to another brother and sister and say, please help me. Pray in your hearts for God to reveal himself. I'm going to give you one more truth. Elijah, Daniel, Micah. Where's Micah? Micah, your father is a sinner. And he's failed many times. And I've asked God to forgive me, and I ask you to forgive me. And I commit myself today in front of everyone here to be what Christ wants me to be as a father. And every time I'm not leading you in worship, and every time I'm not leading you in Bible study, and every time I'm not leading you in prayer, and every time I'm not leading you in how to follow God yourselves, that is my failure. Diane, she left, did she? Oh, she's in the back. I have failed as a husband, and I am a sinner. And I want to confess. And I ask your forgiveness. For God has forgiven me. And every time I fail to lift you up higher than even myself to the Lord, every time I am critical of you, every time I'm not forgiving, every time that I don't listen, and every time I talk too much, it is a failure as a husband. And I'm sorry. The last youth sermon was Romans 8, 18 through 25. And as I sat there, broken in my spirit, I kept reading. And this is what Romans 18, 26 says. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. 
We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us to worldless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Amen. I am weak, but he is strong. And the Spirit of God is searching my heart right now. And he is searching your hearts as well. Let him search down to the darkest, deepest parts. And I'm going to give you a little advice, a little wisdom. You don't have to let him. He's doing it anyway. Love him because he searches you and me. Worship him because he cares to conform you to the image of his son, who is the exact representation of him. Let us pray. God, Heavenly Father, we thank you that in your greatest of mercies, you have taken hearts, corrupted, rebellious hearts, hearts that are machines, hearts that are idle factories, hearts that are of stone and not of flesh, and you have turned them, Lord, through the grace and through the blood of your, Jesus, of your Son, Jesus Christ, you have turned them into hearts that beat with a center of worship for you and praise. And Lord, I pray that we all remind, are reminded and remind ourselves, Lord, that you are searching our hearts and we must also search our hearts so that we might respond to you in praise, in submission, in authority, knowing that all good things will come to pass in us and the good thing is that you are turning us into your son, Jesus Christ. There is no other good thing, Lord. Let us remember that as we sing and take your supper, Lord, as a reminder of what you did. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.